The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Friday, June 14th. Several Shades of Lager, an exploration and explanation of lager beers, featuring Jason Oliver from Devil's Backbone Brewing Company. Welcome to the Metropolitan Pavilion, fifth floor, and the Lager Lay-In, the Lager Rumble, no, whatever, all right. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome uh, to the Devil's Backbone uh, Tasting. My name's Ray Daniels. I'm the uh, director of the uh, Cicerone Certification Program, and I am uh, the host for uh, this uh, salon room tonight. So it's my uh, distinct pleasure and honor uh, to uh, introduce our guests, to come and uh, talk to you about uh, his fine beers. Uh, Jason Oliver is the brewmaster at Devil's Backbone uh, Brewing Company. And uh, which is kind of funny because I remember him as an English ale brewer. <laughs> he started out brewing English ales at uh, Warfrat Brewing Company in, uh, in Baltimore uh, in the 90s when I used to run a real ale festival. And, uh, and then he got religion and went to UC Davis and got some uh, solid brewing education and uh, I got interested in making German lagers. And... Uh, I guess uh, all his history since then, right? He started working for Gordon Beers for a while, making uh, uh, lager beers for them, and then uh, got uh, answered an ad looking for a brewmaster to come do this Devil's Backbone thing. And uh, let's see, there's some details there, but here's the important part: Devil's Backbone 2010 World Beer Cup Champion Brewery and Brewmaster of the Year for uh, small brew pubs. And 2012 Great American Beer Festival Small Brew Pub and Small Brew Pub Brewer of the Year. That stuff don't come cheap, folks. All right, that's some serious work. You have to win multiple medals against the entire world of brewers and the entire United States of brewers uh, to take that stuff home. And uh, very, very few people uh, can uh, collect those honors. And it takes real consistency and real quality of product to do it more than once, um, which they have done. So, uh, as I said, my role here is host. I have now said too much. It's time for me to uh, give Jason's uh, kudos. And um, Steve, I'm sorry, I didn't get your title. Steve Kramer. Um, and uh, they're going to uh, take it over and go through the beers and do some tasting. And uh, if you have questions at the end, it seems silly. It's such a small, intimate forum. But they are recording these presentations for Craft Beer Radio. And they'll be available online at craftbeer.com. So if you've got a question, just raise your hand. We'll get a microphone to you so we can get your question recorded for posterity as well. Guys? Use a lot of curse words. Thank you very much. Thank you. So this is great. Um, This reminds me of, like, Mr. Microphone that I had when I was little. Um, My name's Steve Crandall. I'm the founder of Devil's Backbone. Uh, It's been my great privilege and pleasure to be able to work with Jason Oliver over the last uh, four years. Um, I had my epiphany in the craft beer world uh, about 25 years ago on a ski trip to northern Italy, um, where a friend of mine said, you know, what I was going to take back from that trip was the beer, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I was a gin and tonic guy, and uh, uh, the reality was the first time my lips touched a a, a Weinstoffen, which was a Hefeweizen, uh, it totally blew my mind, and over the course of the next 15 or 20 years, 
Um, tra- on my travels out west, I looked at uh, different breweries and small little towns in, in, in the west. And uh, I'm a builder, developer, and uh, been working in a sort of a very rural area of Virginia, Nelson County, uh, same place the Waltons came from, one stoplight. Uh, um, I had a, a, an idea of doing a development out there, and I figured a good anchor business would be a brew pub. And uh, ended up for over a year looking for a used uh, brewing system, and all I wanted to make was Hefeweizen. That was the only thing I was interested in. That's all I drank. And uh, ended up through an international beer equipment broker finding a Zeman Miyake 10 hectoliter brewing system that was in a restaurant in Tokyo. It was a skid-mounted system. It was supposed to be really easy. Take out of the restaurant, load it on a container, ship it over here. It's ready to go. And, uh, you know, I did this without having a brewer. And uh, sure enough, I got the equipment over here, and they had to cut it up in a million pieces to get it out of that place in Tokyo. And uh, literally had a pile of pipes and elbows and things of that nature. And uh, But these beautiful big brass kettles, and it's uh, with a decoction vessel in the middle. And uh, I knew it would make based on my uh, consultants, good Germanic traditional style lagers. That's what I was interested in. And so I put out an ad for a brewer, and I actually got inquiries from as far away as Palau and different places and and began to realize this is a real international kind of business. And right nearby, this guy, Jason Oliver, was uh, working for Gordon Biersch, answered the ad, and uh, he came down, and uh, he saw the system and that's what really turned him on was this system. And, and he said to me, he said, Steve, it says, uh, you know, if I come work for you down here, um, you know, you can't tell me what to brew. Because, you know, I've been brewing on this fairly strict regimen for Gordon Biersch and doing a really good job there. But, you know, I, I got a lot of ideas. And I'm like, dude, I only know one beer, man. So, you know, whatever you want to brew is fine by me, uh, you know. And the funny thing about it is he, he literally spent – I don't know, a month putting this system back together. And I just couldn't even believe how, how he was capable of doing that. But the, the, the amazing thing for me was, I, I, he will tell you, I was sneaking in the brewery at night trying to pull some of this Hefeweizen out before it was even ready. And I was screwing up most of the time, letting stuff out of the tank. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, finally it came, came ready, and uh, the re- we opened, and I drank it, and it was, like, amazing. And that's, like, three months into that. I don't hardly have ever had it again. And Jason's brewed almost 100 different beers in the last four years. And I've been on this amazing educational beer journey with him and just stunned at the plethora of different styles. And uh, um, I got to say, I'm not responsible for any of the awards, but uh, um, I've, been, I've really enjoyed the process. So. Without uh, wasting any more time, uh, I want to pass this on over to Jason, and uh, you can go ahead and kick it off here, Jason. Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, so I'd like to say Steve uh, provides me the canvas in which I paint, um, and he mentioned a little bit about the equipment, and that kind of plays into sort of what we're going to be talking about here tonight in, in lager beer in, in some ways. Uh, lagers are, you know, if you want to break it down into very simplistic terms, there are two main families of beer, ale and lager, and then it has to do with kind of the yeast that's used in fermentation. And 
and that's a that's sort of a simplistic way to look at it. But at the same time, there's sort of a more philosophical uh, way to look at it, which I didn't even write anything about in this uh, pamphlet, which I probably won't even look at. Uh, but it's it's that there's different philosophies in brewing lager beer, and 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 I guess I'll I'll talk about some of the technical aspects of lager. But you know, I think the best beers are made when you have a, a clear idea of what you want to do and you instill passion into it, you instill an kind of a, you instill something into it, you know. It's really easy. You could take a you know, malted barley, hops, water, yeast, fermented with ale yeast, fermented with lager yeast. Okay, you have two different beers. But they might be very similar too. But so it's all about like kind of instilling things. And and what originally got me interested in lagers was sort of the precision of it. Was sort of the Germanic tradition, which you know Ger Germans are very excellent engineers. And you know, and in their approach to brewing was largely you know brought out of uh, the famous German purity law of 1516, the Reinheitsgebot, which states that beer can be only made out of four ingredients. Now you know some brewers will say that's really stifling. And, uh, yeah, and I don't think, you know, it has to be that way. But at the same time, you can, it tells, it teaches you precision. It teaches you how to make really great beer out of four ingredients and how to get the most out of those four ingredients. Yeah, yeah we follow pure to law for many of our beers, but not all of them, you know. So, once again, it's like, you know, we, we, it depends on what we're trying to do. Uh, um, the, the fourth beer, uh, which you'll taste is a lager, but it gets uh, some dextrose, some corn sugar, and it's a Baltic porter. So, but, so, but yeah, a lot of times, but when I try to do a traditional beer, I, do, I, I like to instill traditional techniques into it. When I do a, a contemporary beer, I like to you know, do contemporary techniques. And so I think it's, it all depends on what you want. And um, I know I'm kind of rambling, so I should, probably should actually use this sheet. Um, but, but lagers are... Um, so, for example, just um, my, I started my brewing career brewing English-style ales on a very traditional type of system at open fermentation, did a lot of cask beers, a lot of um, nitro beers, just all English-style ales. And it was great. But then I went to brewing school, and I sort of got turned on by the process. And I have a kind of a saying that I like to say the process is paramount. And what, what I say, mean by that is that it's really all about the process and how you manipulate those raw ingredients to, for an end result. And what really turned me on about Germanic-style lager brewing um, is that there's just these subtle little things you can do, whether it's manipulating the mash, whether it's utilizing natural carbonation. Uh, it's like these little things that, that I think do make a difference. You know, you can get excellent beer brewed in a multitude of different techniques, and that's what's so great about craft brewing. But I think what the main factor is, philosophy in, in beer, and especially lager beer, is that you know you want to instill something in it. And what I try to instill in, in most of my lager beers when I'm trying to do you know, more kind of... When I say traditional, that's, it gets really complex because really traditional only goes back a couple hundred years. And so what is tradition you know it's a very sliding scale but i kind of like like to say i, I kind of brew in a very contemporary slash traditional way it's very like it's not doesn't go back all that far but i try to instill the techniques and the ingredients 
and and get the end result that way. I don't like to. Um, I don't know. Anyway, I know I'm rambling, so let's uh, bring it back a little bit to the technical um, definitions of um, Alan Lager. And I think we'll t- start there. But I guess what I'm trying to like say in this really roundabout rambling method is that it is largely about the yeast, but it's not about the yeast. It's it's about the yeast and the, really the the feeling and what you put behind it, the intent, you know. Uh, so so what are the difference between ale and lagers? Ales um, um, are fermented beverages, fermented uh, grain beverages, typically uh, malt with uh, sometimes other grains, sometimes other additions. Um, and it uses uh, ale yeast, which is Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae. Um, and uh, it used to be called top fermenting because in the old days when you had open fermenters, ale yeast would form a big frothy head. And so brewers would think, oh, it's fermenting at the top, where actually fermentation happens within the liquid itself. And uh, the, the big frothy head was just an indication. It was just a, a visual cue, but it had nothing to do with actually the fermentation. What it had to do is that ale yeast like to link up in chains, and then they sort of like get buoyed by the CO2 is rising. Uh, fermentation being yeast eating sugar creating alcohol and CO2. Well, the yeast would kind of clump together and the CO2 it produced would rise to the top and it wouldn't settle back down. Where lager yeasts are very kind of like in single cells or groups of maybe two and they rise to the top but then they fall right back down. So, so visually back in the old days when you had open fermentation tanks it would form a little bit of a froth, but then it would collapse very quickly. And so that's why the brewers would think, oh, it's bottom, bottom fermenting. And so lagers used to be called bottom fermenting, uh, where actually fermentation happens within the liquid itself. Um, ales ferment at a warmer temperature. They produce compound, a lot more compounds called esters. Esters are very fruity. And ales are very genetically uh, widespread. They've mutated over thousands of years to become what ales are. Lagers, lager yeast is derived as a hybrid. And uh, it's speculated by scientists that the hybridization of lager yeast started in the 15th century. So, you know, that is a good long time ago. But if you consider genetically, you know, just the variation of ale yeast that go back you know, many more hundreds of years and thousands of years popping up all over various parts of of Europe uh, where our brewing tradition derives from. Um, Lager yeast, you know, pops up in in Germany in the 15th century. Now, this wasn't really a pure culture. Really, the pure culture was derived in uh, the 1880s at Carlsberg Brewery by a guy named Emil Hansen. And so he picked out a pure culture of lager yeast and then also developed a technique of growing it up and, and propagating a pure culture where before yeasts were, were kind of varied. There, there were multicultures going on. So a lot of lager can really trace itself back to really one cell. Now, I think there's, I think, two main threads of lager yeast out there, but a lot of them can trace themselves back to the 1880s. All of them can trace themselves back to the 15th century. So lagers are very new. And, and, the, and the difference between really lager, just sort of like the, the flavor profiles of lagers is that lagers ferment at a colder temperature. They produce less of these estuary characters or less fruitiness. 
And uh, they sometimes, some note, some people call them a cleaner character. It just means they have less fruitiness. They produce more sulfur characters, which can give kind of a graininess, enhance certain graininess of the beer. But then it also, you're also tasting uh, more of the ingredients of the malt, the hops, uh, opposed to uh, the malt, the hops, and the yeast, um, which, which ales. And ales are very versatile. So think about ales. There's many different strains, a big umbrella, Lagers, just like one point. Um, lagers, like, it's a very new technology, and, and it's really um, a birth of, like, the Industrial Revolution. Lagers are very modern, but in a way, for craft beer, it's kind of a, what is old is new, and what is new is old, and once again, I'm rambling. Um, so does everyone have a beer? I've got all night. Okay, great. Well, well I'll tell you what. Let's uh, start. I'll talk about the first beer briefly, and then we'll hop back on my, my, my lager shtick. Uh, so the beer that you, you had poured was our, uh, the first one we're tasting is our Vienna lager. And uh, the description sort of on the second to last page. The Vienna Lager is uh, it's one of our flagship beers. We started with it uh, four and a half years ago at our pub as one of the four year-round beers. Uh, I started that brew pub to have four year-round beers and six seasonals, always changing, so a lot of variety coming through. But one of the original beers was the Vienna Lager. The original four lineup was a gold lager, uh, gold leaf lager, Vienna Lager, 8-point IPA, which is American IPA, and then... Uh, Wintergreen Vice, which was Steve's Vice beer, which he sort of started the whole thing about and then since moved on from. Uh, something about the Vienna Lager that's, uh, that's really amazing, and it's, it's sort of blown away all our distributors. Um, it is sort of an entry level or a, what I call a gateway drug to craft beer. Um, the area that we built our production breweries in the, 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 the heart of Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley, what was once called or still called the breadbasket of the Confederacy, and that was strictly an area that was very heavily uh, oriented towards your, your, your lighter lagers, your Budweiser, your Miller Coors, those, those kind of beers. And uh, um, there was some reluctance on the part of uh, some of our distributors that you know the, the craft beer thing was going to be very uh, prominent or very big in the area. And when that Vienna went out there, it was an amazing adoption rate from people that were drinking Budweiser or Miller Coors to start drinking Vienna. And currently today, in the whole Shenandoah Valley, the number two selling draft beer behind Bud Light's Vienna Lager. And it, it's, it's sort of stunned everybody. Um, and what I find remarkable, it, it's, it's a craft beer drinker's beer. It's very nice, sessionable beer. But those folks that really haven't been introduced to craft beer before, you know, their first thing is, oh, I don't drink dark beers. Well, uh, when they tasted the sweet character of the malt, uh, they just really adopted it. And uh, it's been pretty, pretty exciting to see it go. Yeah, and this just weird can't keep up but you know I, the Vienna Lager is a great beer I knew it'd do well out in the marketplace because I think I like to say it gives you a lot but doesn't take anything from you what I mean by that is that it gives you a really nice malt character it gives you um, some great flavor but it's very smooth it's not very bitter uh, and this beer is very food friendly it goes excellent with a lot of different dishes and so this beer 
you know, it's great for beer dinners, but it's just, it's just excellent with, uh, you know, like pasta and pizza, but it really just goes with everything, just sort of like medium-bodied foods out there, which is generally what most people eat most of the time. So it, it is um, just a very food-friendly beer. Um, this beer originally was sort of developed uh, in the 1840s in Vienna with some of the technology that was actually kind of gleamed from England. Uh, you have a, a, a brewer named Anton uh, Dreyer went over to tour England, which was the most manufacturer, most industrial brewing uh, country in the world. And he took certain techniques and brought it back to Austria with him. Um, at the same time, you know, tech, this is the Industrial Revolution. Uh, up before this time, um, just how color gets into beer, color comes from malts. And up until this time, like, malts were, were dried in different manners, often with a lot of heat, uh, sometimes with direct smoke, um, and beers, as a result, were very dark. But then with the Industrial Revolution coming, uh, there are techniques of indirect heat in malt. Um, malts became lighter. Uh, and so you have this Vienna lager kind of developing in the, the middle of the 19th century that was not brown or black anymore, but it was kind of like amber or reddish. And so you have this really visually appealing beer come about, and then it doesn't, it's not as heavy. And uh, so this beer became very popular. It inspired, you know, there's a whole time between Austria and Munich where one of uh, this guy's like um, disciples, not disciples or friends, you know, also owned Spaten and it got sort of, like Spaten was the first one to introduce the, the first Amber Oktoberfest. And that was influenced by, by his relationship with uh, this guy Dreyer in, um, in Austria. And up until that point, Oktoberfest beer is really dark. Now, Oktoberfest beers, quite honestly, are golden in color. So as actually colors really dropped down throughout the history. But we, what we think as Americans as Oktoberfest beers are as a nice, hearty amber lager. So, you know, that's where, where tradition gets a little dicey. I like to talk about traditional things, but tradition is a sliding scale. And really what we think about beer, and especially lager beer, really is an invention of the 19th century, 19th and 20th century, really. So... So before that, I mean, lager really is an invention of the Industrial Revolution and the 19th century. It's, uh, and it's, it's the new kid on the block. But it really took over in a big way because you have this, I have this like little kind of um, thing here about the perfect storm. There's, there's some, some factors that really made lager brewing really take over. First off, it is different it, on the palate. It's less fruity. There's a certain drinkability to lager beers. Uh, it does take longer to make. It does take some extra, um, extra uh, cooling capacity. You need to keep it cold. But with Industrial Revolution, you have modern refrigeration coming on board. Uh, some of the lager brewers I've spotted, and I think even the one in Vienna, were the first to really employ modern refrigeration in brewing. Uh, Modern killing techniques made malt paler, so now you have a, a visually a, a different visual to the beer, but then you can actually see it because glassware is becoming more available to the average consumer. Before then, you had the pewter mugs, earth, earthenware mugs, leather mugs, stuff like that. So now, you know, 
the average person from time to time can drink out of a glass. I mean, that's, think about that, that's kind of a novel thing, or now I can actually see what my beer looks like. So, so all these little things are kind of coming together with, um, with technology. And, uh, and, and so lager just takes off in a big, big way. Pilsner beer uh, started in the 1840s in Pilsen, which is a, a city in uh, Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic. And that was, you know, kind of a pioneer of that pale lager, nice visually pale beer. And that just exploded, you know. So, yeah. Okay. All right, great. Well, I better speed up. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. And please prompt me because I'm going to waste one more minute. I got I got to say this. Um, what was really cool for us on the Vienna, you saw we won the, the World Beer Cup and the Great American Beer Festival gold for the Vienna uh, last year. The Vienna that we won the World Beer Cup gold was uh, produced in our brew pub on the little Zeman Miyake system. And the uh, gold medal we won uh, at the Great American Beer Festival was produced at our production brewery and was a bottle taken off the line. So a lot of kudos to the brewers to be able to pull that kind of thing off and ramp that up. No, that was great. Um, so, okay, next beer, you know, um, is our Schwartz beer. And this is a beer, it's a great beer. It's a, a beer near and dear to my heart. Schwartz beer, uh, Schwartz means black. In German, uh, we purposely misspell it with a T. By the way, it's, it, so if you look in the in the description, it's it spelled tea correctly. For tasty. That's right. right. Tea is for tasty. Um, so this beer is great. I, I like to say Schwartz beer is almost like the ger the German equivalent of an Irish dry stout. And what I mean by that is, I you know Guinness or other I Irish dry stouts are black. They have color, that flavor, but they're not that alcoholic and they're not that heavy. All speaking, so Schwartz beer is just a really nice, approachable black beer. Some nice, mellow chocolate notes, maybe some hints of caramel, but it, it doesn't, and a little smoke. It doesn't, but it doesn't sit too heavy on the palate. And once again, this beer goes great with food. And so this is a beer that has a lot of flavor, a lot of color, but doesn't really just weigh too much on you. And and you're starting to see more and more uh, Schwartz beers being packaged out there on the market. Um, a couple notable ones, like up in New York, uh, I really think uh, Saranac does a great one with their Black Forest uh, black lager. It's delicious. Um, and then you're just seeing all, more and more pop up. Yeah. You said you were able to get people to approach the Vienna lager, who had traditionally been American lager mm -hmm. drinkers. How has been the getting them to make the leap into a Schwarzenegger versus the Vienna lager? I, I think you know some of that has to do with just purely you know, one customer at a time, one person at a time, and tastings where just people try it and they, they really like it. And when I was with Gordon Biersch, uh, I saw this notably, and I, I see it a little bit with the Schwartz beer, uh, although, you know, I'm not out in every, every uh, you know, bar or restaurant, but that there's a certain segment of the population that does not like your, your typical beery taste, and then they can taste this, and then sort of get that kind of like maybe a little some coffee notes to it or some smoky notes or or something else and and it's like well okay wow this this doesn't taste like beer I'm I'm used to you know um, so so an added point to that um, you know I've talked to our distributors it is a tougher sell 
and it's probably always going to be a tougher yep. sell. It, it's going to be a lot smaller segment, but it's interesting. The people that you get to taste it, they're they're really surprised, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, like everywhere I worked, you know, your 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 dark or your black beer is always going to be a slowest seller. Um, doesn't mean you can't find niches with it. Um, but I think this one is a great niche to be into because I think some dark beer drinkers really want some intense, some intensity, and they might be a little let down by this. But at the same time, a lot of dark beer drinkers do like this. But then there's a large part of normal beer drinkers that really like this too. And I just, I just love the style because, you know, it has flavor, it has complexity, but it. But once again, it sends light on the palate. It has a, a great drinkability to it. And, and I brew all kinds of different beers, uh, strong beers to very, very light beers. But I really do have a love for drinkable beers and sessionable beers. And, uh, and the sign's just gone out, so the next beer is coming, so you better finish up. <laughs> so, 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 no, Schwartz beer, it's just, it's just a wonderful beer, and... Um, um, it just and, and this beer goes really great with food too, because it's not very bitter. I think sometimes sometimes hops are the hardest one to overcome when you're talking about like beer and food, but this one has enough to support it, but doesn't overwhelm. So as this next beer is kind of coming out, and I guess you can pour your own if you you haven't finished it. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll drink it all. All right, this next, next one coming out is uh, our Smokehouse Lager. And uh, this is brewed in the sort of Bomberg style of Rauch beer. And what Rauch means in German is smoke. And this is a really interesting beer because before, you know, really the Industrial Revolution, all beer would have a smoky character of some, of some sort in it. Uh, and that's because the gases of the combustion that were drying the malt would be absorbed into the malt to varying degrees. Some malts were dried with hay, some malts were dried with wood, some malts were dried with coal, but, but up until modern malt drying techniques were, all beer would have varying degrees of smoky character. Bomberg, Germany is the last holdout of this traditional style of, of, of brewing, which... Um, they, they dry the malt with uh, beechwood smoke. And, and this, so Rauk beer, uh, so Bomberg is sort of the last traditional holdout of this. Now they make normal beer in Bomberg too, but it's, it's great to have these smoky beers. Like, and they make, and it's not just one type of beer, they have, you can have a smoked Hellas, which is a smoked pale lager, or a smoked Meritzen, which this is more like, uh, or a smoked Bach beer, which is a strong lager, or a uh, smoked Weissen, which I find is very interesting, a smoked wheat beer, which is an ale. So, so this beer, you know, it's taken me, uh, I've, been, I've been making beer for 17 years. It's taken me about 15 and a half years to make a smoked beer. I just never thought it would sell. And, and in one year, I, I made, I think, three or four different smoked beers. I just sort of got on the kick and I found that it does sell especially when you, uh, when you move it in a certain way. And, and the Vienna is a very 
food-friendly beer. This is a no-brainer. This is excellent with pork products, grilled meats, cheeses, uh, like smoke. I mean, th- this beer is just, it's just a food-friendly beer. And, um, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think of the, the smoke character in this beer? I think they can complement each other, but also unsmoked meats go well with this, and also because this can bring a certain smoky character to it. And then also to cook with brazen uh, brats in and Ralk beer, or or like deglaze in a pan with it, or various things. It works really well. So, so this. Yeah. yeah. What's that? There's not, but you're probably like uh, wild yeast can often throw out a lot of like various uh, flavor compounds. Some of those can be phenols, and so smoke is is really high in various phenolic compounds. Yeah. So that might be some of the tie-in that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, the the whole band-aid thing that is especially prevalent in Scotch whiskey, um, and so that's definitely coming from the smoke. Um, uh, that comes from Vireman uh, smoked base malt. I've also used best smoked uh, uh, malts in the past, but I prefer the Vireman smoked from Bomber. So I've always known that uh, smoke beers come from smoked malts, but is there any of the boil, like if you were smoking or you're boiling under wood or something like that? Uh. Uh, you know, our system is a steam-fired system, and so... I guess traditionally so. Yeah. yeah. Traditionally so, perhaps. Uh, but, yeah, like, everything's pretty modern now, and it's a very closed system, so... So, in our case, no. Uh, we did actually do this really interesting hybrid of a, a... a wheat beer, and this is an ale, not a lager, now we're derivating a little bit, but... This guy, we, who is a great account in Charlottesville, which is near us, and um, agreed to do a beer with him. Um, and he, he, his idea was grilled lemons, because his buddy is a chef, and he does this great Caesar with grilled lemons, maybe a seared Caesar with grilled lemons. And I'm really glad he brought this up, because that's a combination I never would have thought of in a million years to instill into a beer. So what we did ended up using some... Uh, Oak smoked wheat malt, which Vireman also makes, which is a malter uh, malt house that I buy some malt from. So it's a smoked wheat malt. And then I also smoked, we have a smoker behind our brew pub, and I smoked some lemongrass and coriander, and I stilled that into the beer along with the smoked wheat. But then I used Weizen yeast, and it was a really great combination. And the smoke was like, you wouldn't even know it was there unless you really looked for it, but it did bring out a very complex uh, character to the beer uh but once again like you know grilled lemons who would i i I never would have thought about that and we had actually the release uh two nights ago and the garnish was a was a seared lemon on the rim and so it had this like black grill marks and it was wonderful uh and it was really it's a really great beer the beer is called summer grass and uh it's just it actually outsold our hefeweizen uh at the pub last week which is amazing 
So, so this last beer, um, and thank you for bearing with this very rambling. Yeah, shoot. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's died or not, and and maybe Ray can chime in on this, but there's two breweries left in Bomberg that that retain the smoked beer uh, tradition, and that's uh, Special and uh, Schenkerla, and pronounce my forgive my pronunciation, but and they do and ex- they do several different you know types of smoked beer. You know, I like to think that they're not going anywhere anytime soon. I think, you know, there's a great pride in that city for beer. And there's a bunch of breweries in that town that don't do smoked beer. But I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. And I think what's great about craft craft beer in our industry is that we're, bring, we're kind of like bringing these styles back. And we're bringing interest to them. And, and then, you know, you talk about craft beer revolution. It really is a revolution because... Revolution is, you know, full circle. We are influencing Europe now with our techniques. And and then, you know, our interest in various indigenous styles are making them interested in their own styles. Yeah. And that's very true with, like, styles like IPA, Porter, um, and and stuff like that. So that's really getting back to the origins and making them interested. And I'm breathing new life into an industry like, like, you know, um, so it's, it's a wonderful thing, you know. Question? Okay. Okay, the last beer is uh, another beer that's very near and dear to my heart, and that's the Danzig Baltic Porter. Um, Baltic Porters are a really fascinating beer, in my opinion, in that they blend some aspects of ales and lagers together. And what I mean by that is that porters are... Are, are black are black typically black ales that drive from the British Isles, and uh, they're brewed with ale yeast. And uh, back in the 18th and 19th centuries, porters were were, were king. They're huge, and they're being exported to other parts of Europe, uh, especially Northern Europe. And uh, they're often very strong, very rich, very chocolatey, very heavy. And uh, and so so certain parts of northern europe i think you know got this idea it's like well i'm going to brew my own you know strong black beer and so once lager took hold in europe and developed uh yeah these 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 northern european brewers making these porters but with their lager yeast and then and so what you get is a combination of a porter which has some really nice chocolatey notes some coffee notes some roasty notes but then you have the lager yeast which doesn't produce a lot of like fruity esters, but it produces maybe a little more licorice in it. It produces uh, a different flavor spectrum. So what you're getting is almost a combination between a Bach beer and what Bach beers are, are strong lagers um, with that of a porter. So it's really kind of a nice hybridization, you know, a nice combination of styles. Uh, half my, my ancestry is Eastern European and... Um, there's no real indigenous Eastern European beer style, maybe besides Grazza, that, that, that you know of. But this style of beer is permeated from the Baltic region, or it's called Baltic Porter, from Scandinavia and Poland and, and then other parts of, 
of the Baltic region, and it's come throughout all Eastern Europe. So you'll see a, a strong porter in the Czech Republic, see a strong porter in Slovakia, see a strong porter in Ukraine, nowhere near the Baltic, but strong black lager has permeated down through that region. And, um, and so it's an interesting beer. I like to say it's a diminutive cousin of the Imperial Stout because it was influenced by the Imperial Stout. The Imperial Stout was a strong black ale exported from England to Russia. Well, this is a, uh, a strong black lager originally brewed indigenously. So, uh, and once again, you know, like, I like to say I like to brew traditionally, but I'm also very cognizant of the fact tradition is a very sliding scale. And traditionally, 70 years ago, traditionally 200 years ago, it all varies. But I really like, I really like this beer. And, uh, you know, it has a great lager drinkability. It doesn't have much of a, a, a hang-up. It has a nice dryness to it. It is, a, it is 8% alcohol. Not huge by, by maybe contemporary standards, but it's a big beer, you know. Uh, but it, it, I think it gives you a great complexity with a great drinkability. Once again, that lagerness does not... The lagers produce much less of those esters, and esters are great. They're very complex and give a great roundness to a beer, but I think lagers give a little sort of more of a precision of flavor and more lets that, that, that malt shine through, lets the hop shine through. gives a slightly different perception, maybe a little more streamlined approach. And I think in a beer like this, it gives a great drinkability, a dangerous drinkability, in fact, because it, you can really drink a, a fair amount of these. And so I, I, I think the shepherd's cane is coming to pull me off the stage well, here. Well, I know we had somebody had a question back here. I jumped in in front of him, so let's get the question in. Jason, I just, it, it's, it's more of a comment than a question. You guys are very easy to work with. And how is it that you're so easy to work with your suppliers? Well, how am I so easy to work with our suppliers? I think it's probably just being very forgetful and uh, <laughs> good breeding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, hey, hey, thanks guys for coming out. And, and any other questions? Uh, yeah, ask. Yeah, yeah, please. Excuse me, it's about the Vienna. Uh-huh. You said that it's a number two after Badweiser, and we're interested in knowing how you did the price point. How do you get a craft beer to become number two on the price point? Yeah, um, yeah we, um, the, the, the Vienna sells in our market anywhere from an, a very low end of eight ninety nine a six-pack and goes all the way up to some crazy prices like eleven fifty a six-pack, but generally around 950 and it it does very well it sells um uh without any any problem and i think people are just choosing to spend a few a dollar more or a few more dollars more to, to buy in the draft also it sells uh generally around five dollars a pint in our area um and it may be anywhere from 450 to 550 depending on where we are and we we sell our vienna for the same prices we sell our IPA for a keg. The IPA gets more hops, which are more expensive, more malt because of the higher alcohol beer. But then again, the Vienna takes longer to produce. Lagers take longer than ales. And so something I didn't get to earlier, at least in any depth, is that you know, this beer 
takes uh, at least two extra weeks to produce than our IPA, and that ties up a tank, and that really reduces our, our throughput. But you know it, that it has to be that way, and so so. But it's interesting, like you know, it's um, it, it's it's sold like a contemporary craft beer, but um, you know, I think you know what's great about craft beers like people want to drink local and 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 support local i think we all do here and i think we're giving them something that i know the beer aficionados can appreciate sessionability but then also just normal people are just maybe getting experienced or getting like turned on to it or or just really want to support something local or have something that's really approachable so i don't know if that answers your question yeah, the Dan- the Danzig. What was the question? So he asked if he asked if the Baltic uh, Porter is seasonal. Yeah, you know, right now it's been just draft only. We're gonna be putting in bottles uh, come this fall, and uh, so it's gonna be sort of a fall winter seasonal beer. Originally, what we planned on doing was having the Schwartz beer be half a year round offering with the Baltic Porter being the other half of a year-round offering during the colder months. But now, I think just to streamline things, we're going to do the Schwarzbier year-round with the Baltic Porter just coming in the colder months. Um, uh, any, any other uh, questions out there? All right, everybody. I think we, we started a few minutes late. We've run over a few minutes late. Thank you, Jason, for all the great beers. Really loved all right. them. All right. Well, thank you for, uh, for putting up with my ramblings. Uh, but uh, but look at the look at the handout. It's it's like I, I felt like I was in high school and uh, with a report card. I did this like just with minutes to spare before I had to drive out of home, you know, to come here. So yeah, there that was, that was terrible. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.